Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Removing shyness around that is, is certainly in in people's um, wheelhouse. And I'd say for, for the folks that kind of don't have the network or earlier in their careers, we, we, we live in, you know, I mean, this podcast is an example of it. We live in the age of, of kind of free distribution for creators. And so the advice I give kind of young folks who say want to work at a specific company, say in a product role or, or you know, a role that's kind of more ambiguous to get into is write a medium post about or a substack. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Dmitry Shevalenko, co-founder of Tortoise. Dmitry, for people who haven't heard of you guys yet, what's your what's your elevator pitch? How do you describe Tortoise? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, long-time listener, first-time guest, uh, real treat to be with you all today. So Tortoise makes it possible to have a light electric vehicle, like a delivery bot or shared scooter, be remotely driven by anybody with a laptop and an internet connection. They can be halfway around the world at a low speed. And so you're, we make it possible to see out of the, the cameras that are added to a light electric vehicle and uh, at a low speed drive it from A to B. And we do this using commodity electronics. So you can take any light electric vehicle and with just a uh, hundred bucks and, and extra parts, basically the insides of an Android smartphone, you now have this magical capability to, to remotely drive it as if it was a, a video game. So awesome. So let's, let's start talking about some applications. Let's talk about Albertsons and Safeway, maybe to start with. Yeah, so the, the kind of big, big vision, the, the galaxy brain vision for, for Tortoise is to be the most cost-effective platform of moving anything at a low speed and, and doing so in, in a zero emissions way. So, so we only work with, with electric vehicles. And we're now very focused on the last mile delivery space and when, when COVID hit, we saw this really, really big gap, especially in, in grocery, retail, and, and parcel same-day delivery. So post-COVID, everybody was ordering everything online and expecting it to be delivered same day. 
and that that ends up being really expensive and, and there just wasn't enough capacity in the system to, to support that. And so we, we saw a few food delivery robots that, that work well for, for small on-demand hot food things. And we've got full-on self-driving cars, which are awesome, but still decades away from, from mass commercial scalability. And we saw this really big gap in, in grocery, retail, and parcel. So, so how do you, in, in a low-cost way, make it possible to deliver home groceries for, from a store uh, and have a robot that can carry 100-plus pounds of goods? And so we developed our own delivery robot, Tortoise Cart, and it costs about four to five times cheaper than the, the next cheapest delivery robot, and it has six times the carrying capacity. So it can carry 120 plus pounds of goods in secure containers, and we primarily service grocery companies, logistics companies, meal kit uh, delivery providers. So, so anybody who has a, a need for doing last mile deliveries, three miles or less, and, and need to, needs to carry larger goods, we lease our robots to them and then offer our, our delivery service. And so they'll just tell us which cart they load it uh, with the goods. And then they tell us which cart and where they want it delivered to. Then one of our remote drivers who can be located anywhere in the world They'll take control of the cart and uh, drive it to the recipient's home. Recipient comes out, gets their goods from the cart, and the robot goes back to the store or can go do another delivery. And so for, for people who haven't seen one of these carts, how do you describe it to folks? So the, the way I describe it is it's really a mashup between an electric wheelchair and a, and a push cart. So, so we, the, the vehicle chassis is very similar to, to that in an electric wheelchair. And instead of having a seat, we, we have a flat bed where you, where you can put containers on it that each have their own Bluetooth lock. It says about two feet wide, four feet long, and as I said, can carry 120 plus pounds of goods. And, and so the, the other kind of mashup component is, is obviously the components of a smartphone. So we've basically taken together an electric wheelchair, a smartphone, and, uh, and a push cart, and, uh, and there you have the tortoise cart. And you know, I think in, in terms of the spirit of the show, you know, our, our approach has always been as a company not to be focused on research and development of things that don't yet exist, but, but really on combining things that exist in novel ways to, to unlock new possibilities. And from a, from a timing point of view, you know, we, we now live in a world where Android smartphones, the, the cameras and components inside of them have gotten 10 times more powerful while getting 10 times cheaper over the last decade. You have electric batteries that, that have had a 10x price reduction and then we now have 4G connectivity that, that's pretty much everywhere where, where three-mile delivery would make sense in the Western world. And so you, you kind of combine together the, those three secular technological developments, and, and that's really lies at the, at the root of, of what we're doing at Tortoise. Well, as the father of four children, I, I do think it was smart to, uh, to put the smiley face under the lights so, the, so this cart looks friendly as it's coming towards you. It makes you think about like the Pixar movies, Cars or something. Good, good, good design strategy there. Yeah, and that's very intentional on on our part. You know, a lot of what's been done in, in the robotic space is, uh, is is to really make things look futuristic, like they're from a sci-fi movie, and that's that's awesome in terms of impressing your your designer friends. But in terms of deploying robots in real world public environments, 
making people feel safe and comfortable is more important. And so we, we, we've taken an approach of, of not making our, our robots super sexy, but making them very friendly. So the smile, you know, not having too many sharp curves, making it something approachable that, that you feel like you've already seen. That's also why we're starting with a 100% remote controlled solution. So if you ever step in front of our robot, you'll actually hear a human voice come out from you because the, the teleoperator can play voice commands. And, and so, so yeah, we, we're, we're not trying to impress people with visions of the future. We're, we're trying to make them feel comfortable with new technologies deployed in, in a very pragmatic way. Yeah. So, I mean, this, to me, this makes so much sense in the real estate world, like something that is really exciting these days when, you know, big office buildings in downtown of uh, great cities are really hurting. Right. And there's, there's a lot of real estate that's uh, not too exciting to own right now. Right. Owning an industrial unit that Amazon is, is leasing from you is, is a high demand kind of thing these days. Right. But Amazon has a problem of last mile. Like it is a, it's a significant concern for those folks. And there haven't been a ton of great options out there. And like, I'm on tortoise.dev right now. And I'm seeing this like, hey, it's, you know, it's probably 10 to 15 bucks to have a human driver do this versus $4 to have have this cart do it. I mean, from a few, from a pure math standpoint, it seems great. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, the, the main benefits we focus on with with customers is is cost savings and, and that ultimately gets passed down to consumers right it, it's not going to be sustainable for for folks to pay 40 percent premium on their groceries just to have it delivered same day yet the consumer expectation is i, I want my groceries delivered same day and so gro- grocery is not a high margin business and so we, we we need to rationalize the the delivery costs and and by introducing automation and by globalizing the the labor pool that that can be doing some of this last mile work we're we're empowering not just big grocers like Albertsons to offer same day delivery but but we're really focused also on small businesses mom and pops stores so that they can compete with Amazon and and offer same day delivery you know one of my core insights of, of just having been around a bunch of different tech companies. I was at Uber, was at Facebook, was at LinkedIn. Human behavior tends towards instant gratification. And once people are used to, in the post-COVID environment, getting things delivered same day, it's not going to feel right to go back to two-day delivery, even though pre-COVID, two-day delivery still felt magical, right? So, so once you go same day, you don't go back. In the same way that, that when Amazon introduced Prime, seven days all of a sudden felt like a lifetime and two days was was the new normal. And so so same day is the new normal. And so one, one of our big missions at Tortoise is, is really democratizing access to this. So it's not just something that you know the one percent can can afford on an ongoing basis. And in addition to doing that, we're removing emissions from this process. So so our carts are 100 percent electric using swappable batteries. We, we can provide you know full day of service with one cart. And, and take a lot of emissions off the road. And, and we're also taking cars and trucks off the road. So you're, you're lowering congestion, you know, especially as, as COVID lessens, you know, unfortunately fewer people are gonna be using public transit and road congestion is gonna become a, a big problem again. It's, it's good to, to be taking delivery trucks off the road. There's this crazy stat that in London, this, this is pre-COVID, 10% of all street traffic is caused by delivery trucks blocking one lane of the road, and then all of the aggregate traffic uh, and congestion that, that comes from that. 
So we're, we're really excited, in, in addition to the cost saving, to, to be helping transition last mile toward towards a zero emissions profile and then reducing congestion as well. I mean, I just, there's so many advantages. I love it. Tell me this. I understand that this is approved to operate in like all sorts of markets already. Where, where are you guys approved already? Yeah. So there's, there's 13 states that have passed uh, preemptive laws. And this is largely thanks to lobbying work on, on Amazon and FedEx's part, allowing sidewalk robots. And in, in other communities, you know, like Los Angeles, you know, we work closely with the city and nonprofit groups there, and there's no ordinance that prohibits operations like this. So in, in many environments, it's it's unregulated. And, you know, we, we always reach out to the city and, and engage constructively on that front. But we, you know, we provide insurance, you know, we're very transparent about our operating model, the, the training our remote drivers go through. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, the, the combination of the fact that, that we go at a low speed, that it's 100% human controlled that gets cities really comfortable and then they get really excited about the, the benefits here the fact that we're, we're empowering contactless home delivery d- during this pandemic time the zero emissions piece and, and the congestion reduction which we talked about yeah when when you think about challenges to overcome can you talk to me about security of like safeway feeling like the groceries are actually going to get to the customer yeah so when the when, when the order gets loaded into the cart, the containers, they have a locking mechanism on them. So the, the goods are, are locked and secured until they arrive at the, the recipient's destination. And we really have a lot of flexibility in terms of the the checks that can happen before the the container gets unlocked. So so the, the carts obviously have a camera. And so we, we can even do alcohol delivery because the remote teleoperator can even show your, your ID to the camera and they can confirm that you're of age and that you're you're the intended recipient. You can also do that for for pharmacy product delivery and and really any dig, any goods ordered e-commerce. You, you can confirm that the the person with the receipt is the, is the one uh, that that's getting them, and only then will the container get unlocked. We're we're also doing things like building in a thermometer so we can report back on the temperature inside the container for the duration of, of the delivery. So you can have confidence that, you know, the goods didn't spoil. And so, so yeah, so security is, uh, is, is a big focus for us. You know, we also, the, the solution as it is now is 100% attended delivery. So the recipient comes out and gets their stuff from the container. We're, we're working on a new type of container that actually has an internal motor that supports unattended delivery. So we'll actually be able to push out your, your box of goods right in front of your, your doorstep. And what's even neater is we actually already have the communication protocols in the cart to be able to speak with your garage door. And if you give us permission, we can, when you're not home, drive, drive into your garage, remotely open it, push out your goods, drive out and close the garage door behind us. And, and that's that ends up being a very, very secure form of delivery. And I think a lot of people would, would rather have a robot drive into their garage than, than give that permission to a, a delivery courier. Yeah. And and is the box secured to the delivery robot like or or do you have any concern about somebody just picking up the whole box and taking it? Yeah, they are secured. Ultimately, though, even if they, you know, I mean, with a crowbar and enough effort, you can break into most things. So it's not, yeah, but but the the lid, you know, the, the container lid, when it's locked, you know, even if you lose electricity, it will still remain in a locked state. So it's, it's you know, you, you would have to 
be very dedicated to, to prying it open. The, the, the other thing to remember is, you know, the cart has cameras. And so if somebody is getting, uh, and also has a speaker, and so if somebody's getting a little too close for comfort, the teleoperator will start playing some voice commands saying, hey, we see you, you know, are you, are you sure you want to do this? And we've, you know, we've completed thousands of deliveries now and actually haven't had a single attempt at theft or vandalism. And I think a big part of that is, is because it's very transparent that there's cameras and then it's very transparent that somebody is monitoring because of the speaker. And, and so that, that combination ends up being a, a really powerful deterrent. Plus, it makes me think you could put some like Mark Rober glitter bombs if you have problems in a certain area, you know, with GPS <laughs> to have your have your private security go pick up the guy who has glitter all over him. Right. Yeah, I yeah, I have to say we, we've heard a lot of creative solutions to, to security and I've, I've not encountered that one yet, but I love it. Oh, uh, my God. Do you, do you know that it, YouTuber? Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know, I know exactly. Yeah, the the for for the the porch, uh, yeah, the porch uh, pirate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he had he had the surprise for him. Yeah, that's too funny. It's not exactly the PR I think we're, we're going for <laughs> in the early stages, but at some point that could be a, a yeah, maybe April sure. Fool's prank next year. That'll be our our viral play. Well, let's do this. I want to run through. Maybe we could just run through some of the previous places you've worked and invested or been a part of. And just tell us some of the the lessons you've learned elsewhere that are helping you at Tortoise. So, like, do you understand you were at, you were at Facebook? Is that right? Yeah. So I, I joined Facebook straight out of undergrad. Was was there from eighty million users to eight hundred million users. Was, was junior, you know, and non technical. So you know, can't claim any of the success the company had during that period. But it certainly it gave me a a, a real taste of of what hyper growth feels like. And I think it's it was very motivating to kind of seek that out as as my career progressed. The other thing it kind of provided me is is being non technical. And, and junior in a company that that really at that time only prized technical talent. It, it gave me a healthy uh, chip on my shoulder. And I think, you know, as, as you talk with a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm sure you encounter that that ends up being a pretty necessary ingredient to, to go down the entrepreneurial journey. You, you, you need that that fire and motivation to, to feel like you need to prove something to the world in addition to, to making a, a positive impact. And so, so Facebook provided uh, that in droves. So tell me this, for the rest of us who have only read about that kind of that kind of growth, what, what does it feel like? Well, I think in a really practical way, when, when a company is growing like that, your job changes every six months, right? Because the, the you know, and that, that's true for, for most people at the company is, is your, you know, the scale of the problem you're solving is, is constantly changing. And you're you're basically redeploying your talent against different problems. And so during you know a four year period there, I did everything from user operations to ad sales for social gaming. So back when Zynga was 10% of Facebook's revenue, I've managed that relationship, and it just kind of speaks to the craziness of of early stage startup life, where you know you're entrusting you know they they had a bunch of high paid ad salespeople that were focused on. The supposed big accounts, but all of a sudden, social gaming became the the mega thing, and you know you have this inexperienced guy with with less than a year of experience uh, managing it, and so I think that's that's kind of the joy of yeah. You know, I mean, a, a lot of people have this career advice of, of folks coming out of college. 
you know, try, don't join something super early stage, join something that's kind of already on the breakout path because you, you'll have, you'll get to have that experience of, you know, getting assigned more responsibility than you probably deserve. And then also having a lot of variety. So, so after I, I managed that, I also kicked off a group that was working on political advertising on, on Facebook that obviously in, in recent years has taken a bit of an ominous turn. So, so kind of was, was at the, at the foreground of that opened the company's India office and, and was part of a group that, that kind of helped that grow from, from zero to hundred people in, in a nine month time span. And then also worked on, on payments, business development, payments partnerships. And so just huge variety of, of roles and challenges. And, and so that's, that's really the fun of it. And, you know, it, it kind of, the, the, the downside of it is nobody's kind of charting the path for you. You know, opportunities come up and it, it's not, you, you can't kind of rely on an HR department kind of navigating your career. You, you have to take risks and, you know, make decisions. And uh, but uh, growth ends up solving most problems and creating a lot of opportunity. And so it was, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a wild ride. I mean, I, I would be amiss to, to not call out that the biggest life benefit of that time was I ended up meeting my, my now wife. India landing team. So we we both lived in San Francisco, but didn't really know each other. And it took us spending nine months in, in Hyderabad to spark that relationship. And now we've got three beautiful kids. So that was a big win from Facebook. Yeah. And and did you grow up out there? Where did you grow up? So I was I was born in Kiev, Ukraine. And right before the, the fall of the Soviet Union, my family was fortunate to immigrate to the US. I, I grew up in the Seattle area, went to school out in New York, and then moved to, uh, to the Bay Area for, for Facebook right after college. Oh, interesting. You know, I, I'm fascinated with India I think, you know, expanding into China has been such a big thing for such a theme for so many folks for so many years. But India is really fascinating to me. Any tips for people who are looking to expand into India for the first time? I mean, I, I think that the biggest tip is you you can't just use your, your U.S. talent to figure that out, right? So, so you need to you need to be really smart about hiring local talent, preferably talent that's kind of done this before of, of helping U.S. companies scale into that market. You know, the the India office for Facebook was not actually primarily focused on India as a market. It was it was an operations office. You know, so they were they were servicing customers, users all around the world. We did, you know, by virtue of being on the ground and, and kind of being from HQ, we, we did a lot of in-market outreach as well. But yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, don't, don't have the arrogance to think you can figure it out without hiring local talent. It's, you know, there's so many legal aspects to operating in India cultural that that it's, it's, it's too steep a learning curve to, to just send out somebody uh, bright and smart from from HQ and, and hope they'll figure it out without resourcing them to, to to hire folks locally as well. Love it. Well, let's let's skip around here a bit. Let's go to LinkedIn. What what's the lesson you learned from your time at LinkedIn? The so, so I joined LinkedIn via the their acquisition of Pulse News where I led monetization. So it was just fascinating to kind of be part of a of an acquisition process and and all that entails. How much did you guys Sell to LinkedIn. Yeah, so exactly, it was sold sold for for ninety million, which I, I think, given the the challenges the uh, the mobile news space has 
space since it was probably a good outcome and it was a good good pairing of talent there's still a lot of senior leadership at, at LinkedIn is is folks that came in through that acquisition so so I think LinkedIn got got a great deal the you know the real lesson from LinkedIn is is you know Jeff Weiner the the CEO uh, at the time and kind of CEO of most of the company's growth history he he's just a fantastic CEO and the thing that that he did and said that I will will never forget is basically if if you don't feel like you're endless, endlessly repeating yourself you're you're not being heard and so this idea of of leadership is is basically boiling down you know the company strategy the company priorities to at most two or three key messages that you're just every all hands, every time you're talking with employees, every time you're talking with customers, you're just repeating yourself. And if you don't feel like you're, you're you know, bored from, from your own repetition, then you're not being heard. And, and I think it's, it's really easy to fall into the trap of like believing that because you understand your own ideas and why they're important that everybody else will. And, and I think the, you know, that the kind of, not, again, not, not feeling like a certain arrogance of like, you know, constantly changing, you know, better and better strategy versus repeating the strategy you have and, and, you know, just, just being a broken record on it. Yeah. You know, when you think about Pulse, what do you think people get wrong about branded content marketing solutions? What people who don't do it well, what do you think they're missing the mark on? I mean, I I think in general with, with any content marketing is to be effective. It's can't be about the brand. It has to be about the reader, right. Or, Or the recipient, right. So if, if you're talking about yourself as a company, it's very unlikely that's interesting. And so you, you really have to start with, you know, the same the same perspective a, a journalist does of of what will be valuable and, and interesting for for my audience, for my readers, and you know, then very subtly kind of work backwards from that in terms of what you know where can you uh, tie that in with with what your brand is about. And, and I think for, for a lot of, you know, internal political reasons, it's, it's hard to, to keep that focus. And, you know, there'll always be a temptation to just talk about yourself as a, as a company, as a brand versus keeping the focus on the reader. Ultimately, branded content in, in the social era is all about driving engagement and, and organic viral growth. And if, it, if it's not high quality content, you'll just never do that. And you're kind of wasting a lot of production dollars and effort on on content that's ne- never going to realize its full potential. Yeah, makes sense. You know, c- coming off of such rapid success at Facebook, what do you feel like you gained by that time? That kind of pulse to to LinkedIn time. What do you feel like? How do you feel like you grew, or what do you feel like your your big takeaway was adding that experience? I, I think the the takeaway is is you know, successful companies that that grow fast, they they tend to have not everybody, but there's just you work with good people. And I think the biggest takeaway is you just pick up practices, habits, you know, ways of operating from, from folks that, that you can clearly see, you know, they, they know a few things. And so, so for me, it was, it was, an, I don't think it's any one big thing, but, but again, you know, I think that the takeaway here is, especially if you're earlier in your career, you know, find the right balance between putting yourselves, putting yourself in a situation where you'll have space to fail and then also having the right balance of surrounding yourself with, with people who you can learn from. There, there's certain things you just won't be able to learn unless you try to do them. The but but the other thing I feel is you know I I never got an MBA, and I'm not sure I'm a big proponent of getting MBAs, but I feel I got 
a lot of the benefit of having an MBA because I had great bosses that that had degrees from from top MBA programs, and so a, a lot of you know what what their takeaways were from from those experiences. You know, there's obviously the network benefit which I didn't get get directly, but in terms of what what you learn there, I, I feel I like got you know some aspect of that got passed through to me, and so yeah, I, th- I think it's you know as, as you think about development as, as a professional, it's it's this constant give and take of of kind of having room to fail and, and then, you know, finding the, the right folks you can learn from. Yeah. And, and how do you feel like you apply that lesson at Tortoise? Well, I, I think there is, you know, being an entrepreneur, every day you've got all, all the room in the world to fail. So you, you don't need to, <laughs> you don't need to optimize for that. I think it's, it's, it's being savvy and, and humble about, you know, what are the things you're not world-class at and then reaching out to, to the experts in the world that, that are world-class at it and, and pulling in what you need from them and obviously doing it, doing so in a way that, that's kind of mutually beneficial where you're not just taking, but finding ways to, to give back. But it's, it's really having the, the humility of, of knowing what you don't know and, you know, kind of constantly choosing between, you know, what are the things we're, we're going to learn by doing and experiment versus where, where does it, is it first best to kind of pull in some expertise before we start experimenting? And that's really a case by case decision. But, but yeah, I think it kind of boils down to, you know, who are the investors that you're going to focus on, on trying to get on board, who are you going to hire to, to complement your skill set, and who are you just going to talk to and, and kind of, you know, have that self-awareness to, to, you know, admit that you don't know the best path, but but you're going to be, you know, you always have to be the best at finding that best path if you don't know it yourself. Yeah. Let's let's go to the next one. Let's go to Uber. What do you feel like a big? Yeah. So so so, so I think it kind were. of yeah it, it kind of uh, connects to to what I was saying before. One of the reasons I, I joined Uber was. I saw that a lot of the the folks I respected most at Facebook had all recently joined Uber, um, so I kind of saw saw the talent wave going there, and, and so that was that was a really good proxy. You know, I kind of consistent with what I said about that that instant gratification thesis, which I think Uber is very much ha, has proven out. There, there there was that that talent move happening. And I think Uber to me really opened my eyes to the the difficulty yet and the majesty of operating in the physical world. You know, everything I, I had done prior to that was was kind of pure digital environments. Obviously, had real world ramifications, but but Uber was you know the the first true bits to atoms platform and and company to to, to have breakout success. And I think Tortoise, you know, is also very much a, a bits to atoms company. You know, we're, we're focused on a different set of the problem and a, and a different approach to solving it. But but yeah, I, I think kind of the you know, a, a lot of the, the there's fascinating problems in, in kind of pure online digital environments. But it's really gratifying to get to work on on products that you can physically see and and kind of have them manifest in in your daily life outside your computer and phone. Yeah. And same thing. I mean, obviously what you're doing in mobility, I mean, there's, I'm seeing a number of parallels, but, but what do you feel like are the, like maybe one or two of the top insights there at Uber that, that are helping you succeed the way you are? Well, I think, you know, the, a lot of success with startups and, and technology is, is kind of timing based, right? So, so Uber, came to market right when Google Maps got good enough, right when the GPS tracking on iPhones got good enough so that when you drop your pin, it's actually, you know, 
pretty close to where you are and and you kind of had critical penetration of of smartphones amongst amongst the rider base and 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 so i think the you know what what helped me gain conviction around founding tortoise was was that feeling that some of those secular technological trends around cost of and power of of smartphone components the the pervasiveness of 4g connectivity the cost of electric batteries especially for small light electric vehicles that th- this was the time to to build a company in the space and and so i think the yeah i think the, the timing is everything aspect of, of startup success is, uh, is is a big part of what's informed tortoise's strategy and you know how we chosen which verticals we go after and, and and how we focus on on serving them it's such an interesting thing i think as entrepreneurs so many of us want to feel like timing shouldn't matter like how hard I work, how much funding I get, how my how smart my team is are the only things that should matter. When you think about navigating timing or or kind of embracing higher levels of honesty for the rest of us, you know, if we're starting something new, you know, we, we get so passionate about our ideas. Do you have any thoughts or any questions that we can be asking ourselves to really get more honest about is the timing right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about really putting it as as the first essential question like the literally like why now you know if i was an investor i would i would i think i would be primarily focused on that and then and then really focused on you know why is this the team that in this time can can go and solve this problem or or, or kind of realize this opportunity but but the yeah i i i don't you know I mean, humans have been around for a long time and our needs have been fairly constant and it's it's really you know what creates uh, opportunity is is kind of introduction and penetration of new technologies and there's all kinds of second and third order effects of that and and so I, I think the yeah it to, to me it just has to be the, the the first and central question it's not enough to you know you, you, you kind of have to embrace the fact that there are there's no such thing as an original idea we're all kind of mashing up and, and remixing things that others have conceived of what, what's original what, what where there's opportunity for differentiation is uh is is the approach to to the problem that the way you're you're combining solutions and when you're choosing to to go after it and and you know when i say timing i think that's really also saying market you know several people have kind of said this in different ways but when a fantastic team meets a bad market, the market always wins. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's not that that market can't one day mature and, and maybe you can, you know, as a as an entrepreneur, you you can you can move time by by changing the conditions of a market, but that's you know, you have to have humility about your ability to do that. And so so you you need to just be convinced that if you're gonna be spending the bulk of your life on this effort, which I think needs to be the bar for for an entrepreneur starting a company. It's got to be something you'd be happy doing the rest of your life that now is the time to go after that problem. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. This idea of like being bold enough to pursue something, humble enough to recognize reality, you know? Yeah. And, and I think there's, it's the, you can have it both ways. Like you can have pet projects that are, you know, so you you know, keep keep your good paying job at a big company, have a few pet initiatives that, that you're kind of just, you know, tinkering with on the side. And, you know, at some point the time might get right for it, but it's, it's, it's usually not, you know, if, if something changes in your life, like 
doesn't mean something's changed in the world, right? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, what, what scares me about entrepreneurship just as a category is that this broad set of advice saying, you know, everybody should be a founder, everybody should just go and do this. And I think there's a lot you learn from it, but it's if, if you're not doing something because of the timing and, and you don't have conviction around that, it's it's already, you know, the most likely default path is, is failure. And so you, you just you just want to at least have that conviction that that it would be, you know, where I landed with Tortoise was I felt deep down that, that I would have a lot more regret not pursuing it than I would pursuing it with with an outcome of it failing. Um, and that was a really good sign that I, I should go all in on this, that I kind of had to internalize the failure outcome and, and felt that I still wanted to pursue it at, at all those costs. Mm, that's a great test. That's a great exercise. You know, you've, you've been a part of so many other interesting things. You're an advisory board member to a number of other organizations, maybe just one of them that stands out to me. Tell us about Skyrise. Yeah. So, so just kind of context on that period. So had spent four years at Uber where led the company's expansion to new mobility, things like bikes and scooters, public transit, short-term car rentals, led driver business development. So I had an external facing role where I just got to interface with, with a lot of brilliant mobility entrepreneurs and, and startups. And so as a result of that, you know, just had, had a lot of CEOs that, that I had, had developed great relationships with. And so when I left Uber, I, I basically spent a year as a full-time advisor to, to eight different startups and companies. And during that period, I started collaborating with my now co-founder. And that was kind of, you know, when, when the seeds of Tortoise got, got planted as well. And, and then, you know, summer of 2019 went, went all in on Tortoise. But, but Skyrise is basically building an operating system for, for, for things like helicopters and, and small airplanes so that anybody with just 30 minutes of training can fly a helicopter with an iPad. And, you know, they, they have a much bigger long-term vision of, of automation and introducing autonomy. And they, but they, in the pro process of developing that, they, they basically built an operating system for, for any type, type of, of small aircraft. And so kind of the way flying a helicopter has been described to me is it's, it's like one of those things where you're trying to rub your belly while tapping your head. Um, you're basically using all, but both your legs and both your arms at all times, and it's incredibly stressful. And so, so, so to be able to simplify that to to a two finger interface was a marvel of engineering. Uh, and Skyrise is, yeah, they're, they're really changing what what it will mean to to fly uh, an aircraft and and making it something that I think very soon could be accessible to anybody who drives a car. Very cool. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things happening there with air mobility. We had folks on recently who've got a jet now that has AI in it. So if your pilot passes out or dies or something, any like five-year-old in the jet can go push a red button and AI will land the plane. And if that still has a problem, the jet actually has its own parachute in it. And we had Charles Lindbergh's grandson on here who's working on electric diesel hybrid engines and super interesting things happening in that world. Well, looking at Tortoise, are you guys public with how much you've raised? Is that something you're sharing? Yeah, we're not currently disclosing that, but we'll we'll be happy to, to announce and share that when we are. Yeah. And how long have you been around now? So we, we founded the company in summer of 2019. So about a, a year and a half now. Yeah. When you look at what you've already accomplished and, and kind of that springboard, what what do you feel like are kind of your biggest goals between now and the end of the year? So 
it's it's really scaling up our delivery carts for for the grocery retail and, and, and parcel uh, use case. You know, we've got some fantastic customers already live, but but taking these deployments, you know, that they're starting with a few carts and going from you know to two stores with two carts each to a uh, hundred stores with with five carts each, and I, I think we've we've proven out that this works. We've proven out that that it's cost saving and and can easily integrate into to existing operational workflows, especially in this post COVID environment where things like curbside pickup are super popular. But for us, it's it's really about you know getting to th- thousands of of carts deployed and and having this be a, a meaningful part of of how grocers and retailers provide same day delivery. I love it. Now, as far as the actual cart manufacturing construction itself, what did you like? What were the lessons learned in figuring that out? Well, I, I think anytime you're working with hardware, you have to build into your planning that iteration takes less time and is more painful than it is with software, right? So so I think just the things that with software, when you encounter a problem, you can fix it same day. <laughs> hardware, you know, that, that can easily be a, a month-long process. And so you, you, you kind of, you can't assume that everything will work perfectly and you, you need to build that into to your sequencing of, of successive generations of carts. So I, th- I think that's uh, that's certainly part of, of, of the approach we've taken is, is planning around that, but also not, you know, you can't have the perfect be the enemy of the good. You need to start deploying your solution in, in real world situations with real customers and do the right job of, of setting expectations to them that you know, while things like safety will always be perfect, other things might might not. You know, if you're using 3D printed plastics on some of your earlier versions, they might dent easier than kind of the, the plastics you'll use on the the, the model that, that you'll build thousands of. And, and so it's, yeah, I, th- I think with, with hardware, it's it's really much more important to to get that planning and sequencing right of, of of your iteration cycles and not being too focused on on perfection because you're you're just going to learn so much from from real world use. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So maybe another question for me is, you know, I'm just on the the Tortoise Twitter here. Anybody wants to check it out, it's at Tortoise HQ. By the way, my next thought is, you know, when you've been around a year and a half. And, and, you know, a lot of corporate bureaucracies are very worried about image and things like this. Any tips for, for landing big, giant, high credibility clients like Safeway and, and, you know, the, the mental approach that you need to take to, to get people like that to take a risk on you? Well, I'll show, I'll show several things on that. One is everything takes longer than you want it to. And so my, my favorite old saying is the best time to have planted a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. So for, for I'd say any large enterprise sales process, you know, start start the process way sooner than you're ready for it because it'll take way longer than you want it to. And it could, you know, take out take take many different forms. So so I think that that that's kind of one takeaway. The second is, you know, do your homework on on what matters to to your the companies you're going after, the bigger ones. You know, what, what's going to be the thing that will be relevant to the to the CEO's desk? Because if, if you're especially if it's a new emerging technology that you're trying to get somebody to try out, it's not something they've done before. 
you know, how, how can you position it in a way where even at pilot scale, it'll be interesting to, to the top leadership because you're most likely not going to be working with those folks, but, you know, how do you empower them to, to have a success story they can bring to leadership and, and, you know, focus on working backwards from that as, as, as you work on your positioning and outreach. I mean, that makes so much sense. What, what does that look like for you? Are you searching their social media? Are you getting phone calls or buying people coffees or what, what is your mode of operation for that? Well, I, I think you've got to, wherever you have relationships, leverage relationships, right? So people you've worked with in the past that might know people at a company you want to you want to work with and, and try to get as much intel, you know, try, try to build your version of that org chart and understand who, who the right decision makers might be, especially for, for something new and ambiguous. And I, I think the the real challenge for, for kind of innovation-centric things is, is who in a, in a large conservative organization is willing to take risk? And you need that champion, right? You, you need the person that's uh, those will always be the internal momentum to, to say no and to focus on what's already being done. And so who, who can you kind of get excited as your champion? And I, I don't think there's a, I, I wish there was a, a cookie cutter process to it. I certainly would like to deploy it, but I think mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of starting with relationships where people know you from past things and can kind of vouch that that you're legit is is I think a really effective place to begin and yeah that's kind of moved away from the getting people coffee to catching up on on calls and zooms but but I think that that's still the the, the work that needs to be done and again that that's the part that you don't know how long it will take in that mode before things really start moving on an actual partnership or deployment but that that that's kind of the the whole idea of of planting trees as early as you can knowing it'll, it'll take some time and some of them you know will will grow and and mature at different rates you know it's interesting as you were saying that i was thinking that my next question would be but what about if you don't have those pre-existing relationships and and how do you you know what's your advice on starting them from scratch but it it really made me think you know why don't most of us spend more time working through our existing networks to see you know do you know a guy who knows a guy right like well, I think- yeah i mean the 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 funny and somewhat counterintuitive thing that i've that i've come across many times is when you're making an introduction to somebody else, the person making the introduction is actually good for their relationship with with the person they're making the introduction to. I can't tell you how many times somebody has asked me for, say, an introduction to an investor, and it's somebody I haven't, say, spoken to. I'm connected to them on LinkedIn or whatever, and I haven't caught up with them in a year. And then as a result of making that introduction, I end up having an excuse to then catch up with that the person I was making the introduction to, and it strengthens that relationship. So, so I think the, you know, obviously, as long as you're giving people plenty of room to say no, but don't feel like it's an imposition to ask people you're connected with for, for introductions, you know, make it easy for them, you know, offer to, to send something they can forward and, and kind of fully caveat that they can say no, but that, that it actually ends up servicing that, that person. And so, so yeah, I think kind of removing shyness around that is, is certainly in, in people's um, wheelhouse. And I say for, for the folks that kind of don't have the network or earlier in their careers, we, we, we live in, you know, I mean, this podcast is an example of it. We live in the age of, of kind of free distribution for creators. And so the advice I give kind of young folks who say want to work at a specific company, say in a product role or, or you know, a role that's kind of more ambiguous to get into is write a medium post 
about or a Substack about the 10 products that company should build or the 10 improvements they should make. And it might not get super wide distribution, but I guarantee you there'll be at least a few product managers of that company that will read that post. And so using content as a way in is, is I think, also a, can be a pretty scrappy strategy. You know, what I like about that, too, is sometimes people don't also don't realize how involving the potential prospect in the content production is a great way to become friends. Like because of this show, like we have employees who are we have people who are guests who've become contractors for us. We have people who are guests who have become clients for us. We've got referrals to clients from guests. Like the everybody thinks about, oh, your audience when you have a podcast. You no, know, the guests have been the best part of having this podcast. And like I have so many new friends that like are just like super great human beings I wouldn't have otherwise come across, right? But you know, this month working with one of the five largest technology companies in the world and one of the top five business media brands in the world. With both of them, I've been advising senior executives of like, let's invent something where you can profile your ideal client that, you know, this other area you're trying to break into, like, let's figure out how to involve the client in the content production. And can you profile them? Can we invent an award? Can we, can we invent a podcast? Can we do these kind of things? And it's, it's funny how many more people will take your call for a chance for them to be important compared to when you want to sell them something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, yeah, there, there's a, uh... And we all love content, right? So I think it's it's uh, people get excited about that that creative process, and and I think involving people is, is certainly uh, is, you know a very effective tactic there. It's yeah, and and I think anytime you're kind of in this process of seeking out introductions, you know focus on where you can create value back, right? Some There's some places you can't and it's, it's you know, at first purely one way, but just even kind of offering something, you know, even if it, you think it's low probability, it'll be useful. It, it can be helpful in, in that type of outreach. Yeah. Well, listen, we're out of time here. I feel like we've got a ton more questions for you, but one of my very favorite questions, maybe we can end on this. What's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? I'm a big fan of Naval on Twitter. And I think his his framing of, you know, th- thinking of life as a one player game is is, is really useful for, for business and entrepreneurship. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, don't focus on what other people will think, you know, make sure you're happy with yourself. Uh, and I think that that kind of becomes that authenticity becomes contagious to others. And so I, I certainly try to there's a lots lots of ups and downs in the entrepreneurial journey. Every day is a roller coaster, and and just try to when 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 you are worried about what other people are thinking, just try to step away from that and and make sure you're happy with yourself, that you feel you're doing everything you can, and that consistent with your goals, your your morals, your way of of, of finding purpose. And so I, I certainly try to. It's hard, and you know I fail at that most days, but that's that. I think that's a very grounding thought. So, so I'm interested in this. What's a practical application? What can you give us an example of how that shows up for you? Well, I, I think it's the practical application is if you get an email, say somebody rejecting you, whether it be an investor or a customer or something is going slower than you want it to, or it's a candidate you're, you're trying to hire that said no. So every day you're, you're going to be faced with rejection. If you bring that energy from that rejection into your next meeting, it's more often more you know it's more likely that 
that will lead to yet another rejection, right? So, so I think it's it's kind of not letting the the the, the inevitable bad news of your day cramp your your style and your energy because you're you know entrepreneurship is a sales job and and you need to be bringing energy into every conversation, into every opportunity, and if if you're if you're kind of letting the random outside variables dictate your energy. You're 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 not going to be in control, and and that's going to get really frustrating, and and it, it will ultimately limit some of the outcomes you could have had. Now, I'm not saying like ignore those signals. You know, there should always be this kind of constant, you know, learning algorithm of 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 incorporating, you know, why why something didn't work out, and and being rigorous with yourself about what you could have done better. But you can't let that deject you. And and I'd say the. I guess the other framing I have on it is the beauty of entrepreneurship is ultimately you're responsible for everything. There's nobody else to blame. You know, I think this is, you know, culturally not necessarily the most popular message to deliver, but like <laughs> there's no, there's no room for victimhood in entrepreneurship and you, sh- you need to embrace that. It's like, you know, there's no boss, there's no, you, you chose to do it. You chose to become an entrepreneur. You chose the problem you're going after. You chose the founders. There's no decision that's been made that is somebody else's fault. And so you need to both embrace the freedom and the responsibility of that and 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 kind of use that to your advantage rather than, than feeling dejected. So it, it, it means, yeah, it is your fault if something doesn't go right, but it also means, you know, you're, you're, it's also in your control to solve the problem. Um, and that can be very empowering. You know, I'm interested in this thought because I, I agree with you so much. And and there is such thing as real victims where of no fault of their own, something has happened, right? But why do you think society has uh, embraced and promoted so much exaggerated victimhood these days? Well, I, I think the the flip side of victimhood is entitlement, right? So so I think we're, we, we, we kind of, because of, of the growth of the 20th century, you know, it, it was the default expectation was you're going to live a better life than your parents had. And I think that that has, you know, there, there's been a certain amount of stagnation in, in some sectors of society. And, and I think that that dream kind of, this is largely an American context. You don't necessarily see this in, in other countries, other cultures, which are still on the, you know, every year, you know, you feel things are getting better than the year before, but, but the sense that, you know, we were promised something and, it hasn't been delivered, you know, I think it breeds a certain entitlement. You know, I was part of this generation, kind of the, the participation trophy generation. But my, my favorite kind of twist on that was the participation trophies were really for the parents, not the kids. And and so I think we're, yeah, we, we, we've just had now, I think, two generations in, in American life where everybody expects that, you know, that they're entitled to success and they're entitled to be special. And that's, you know, we're entitled to, you know, having the freedom to, to, to chart our own path, but the, the world doesn't owe you anything. And I think that's not necessarily a message that, that parts of society reinforce back to people. That's such a good point. You know, like from a populism standpoint, that's not going to get a lot of politicians elected. And like, you think about like how easy it would be for media to sell that message versus the message you've been wronged or look at the drama of so-and-so has been wronged. And if they need to exaggerate a little bit about how wronged somebody has been, but it'll sell newspapers or it'll get, get YouTube clicks. Like 
they can rationalize that. You know what I mean? I th- I, I'm kind of like you. I Not only do I love entrepreneurship, I love hanging out with other entrepreneurs because life forces this on them of the <laughs> like take responsibility. It's the only way out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, and that's why I kind of keep coming back to the, you know, you got to feel the timing is right for your entrepreneurship because once you're down that road, you know, it's not, you need to have the conviction around all of it that you're not going to fall into, into kind of this victim mentality. You know, certainly, you know, we're not entitled to much in life, but people are not entitled to be a successful entrepreneur. And that, that that's, you know, you have to operate every day with, with the humility that it might not go the way you want it to, but it's still worth, worth the, the effort. And you're, you're going to feel good about the outcome because you did everything you could. I love it. Well, listen, congrats on all the success. Thanks for making the time for the show today. And let's yell to come back on next year and tell us about all the progress you've made. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye everyone.